This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Nevada Office of the Bureau of Land Management has so many paper records, they'd probably cover the land the agency manages. Recently, it awarded multiple contracts in a blanket purchase agreement to scan and digitize all of that paper. For details of how this will work, the BLM's Nevada Range Program Lead, Catherine Dyer. Ms. Dyer, good to have you on. Thank you. Good to be here. Well, just give us a scope to kind of set the scene here of what the Nevada office does, how much land it manages, and the scope of the paperwork that you've got to deal with. So the Nevada State Office supports the six district offices in Nevada, and throughout Nevada, there's over 43 million acres of BLM-managed land. And so we support the districts in their on-the-ground management, help interpret policy, help allocate the budget, and provide that nexus with the headquarters office. And the paperwork that you will eventually digitize, what is the nature of it? What's it all about and where does it come from? Well, this particular blanket purchase agreement includes only the range records, which I say only loosely because we have quite extensive extensive records. So we have all the records that are housed in allotment files, permittee files, range improvement files, monitoring files, unauthorized use or trespass files, all the litigation files, as well as the multitude of historic records, such as even adjudication files. Got it. So this could go back a century then, some of the records. Absolutely. And that's one of the benefits of this work, because currently the prioritization from some of the offices that are currently taking advantage of this contract opportunity is to get some of the older files digitized so that then they can be more comfortable packaging those up and sending those off to long-term holding while still having the information available at their fingertips. Got it. And give us a sense of the forms that these take. Are they maps? Are they all eight and a half by 11 sheets? Or what do they look like physically? Absolutely everything. And that's part of the intricacies of the contract because the four contractors that were awarded the connection to this BPA agreement, they all have to be able to accommodate that variety of different data. And so we have, you know, large maps that are folded up in files. We have those old, I think they call them onion sheets, that old really thin paper that you have to be very delicate with. We do have a lot of classic eight and a half by 11 type papers, but really there's everything (laughs) included. And do you have acres of, well, I'm exaggerating, but do you have lots of file cabinets and lots of weight, sheer physical weight holding all of this documentation? Oh, yes. We have massive, massive amounts of files. So that's (laughs) one of the things the offices are excited about is, like I said, you know, once these are digitized, especially the older files, because we will still retain a lot of files at the offices, but the older files we will be able to send away to long-term storage, and that will clear up some very valuable space for the offices to use in other ways. Because I've heard of, uh, maybe these are apocryphal stories, but I've heard of file cabinets getting so heavy they've actually endangered structures that federal offices are in. You're not quite there yet. Well, I haven't heard that, but I do believe it. (laughs) All right. Tell us then how this will work. I mean, you'll have task orders for different classes of papers at different times among the four contractors. So each of the task orders or calls is the way this particular BPA is set up. Each of those calls has to be under $250,000 worth of work, and each one is individually bid on by the four connected contractors. And so right now we only have our first call active, 
but we are already setting up the second and third call to be ready for those. And so we don't have all the money to do all of the files at once. So that's the way we're kind of partitioning the work so that we can focus on certain offices at a time as the offices have the capacity also to ensure that they can provide the biweekly review of the work and ensure that they're getting a quality product of digitization along the way. We're speaking with Catherine Dyer. She's the Nevada Range Program Lead at the Bureau of Land Management. And I imagine for, say, a given $250,000 or any dollar amount, you can probably get a lot more 8.5 by 11 sheets from the last 10 years done than you can of ancient maps that might be folded up into odd shapes. So each job is a little bit different technically then, isn't it? Absolutely. And so that's what the offices have to do to help us prepare each call is they have to um, quantify all of these different types of documents that they're going to need to be scanned and digitized. And so that also influences what different machines, you know, what different scanning capacity each contractor would need to bring to each particular job. Yeah, some of it would have to be just black and white, and some might have to be full color if you're dealing with maps. Right. And let me ask you this. Are you looking for capability to search and otherwise use these documents in digital form, or will they simply be static PDFs? What's the retrieval mechanism to make sure you can find them again once they're digitized and stored in Stone Mountain or wherever it is? (laughs) Yeah, no, that's a great question. We're absolutely making them searchable PDFs as well as having naming conventions and electronic file structure that is compatible with our paper file structure. So they will be searchable, usable. You know, everyone working from home for the amount of time that they did during the pandemic, you know, we now have returned to office to some capacity in all of our offices, but that really was an eye-opening experience in terms of how desperately we need to be able to have these records in something other than a paper form. Now, the Nevada office that you oversee, you mentioned, has something, I think you said, 45 million acres. That's a fraction of what BLM itself has in all of the other states out west where it has land. So what are, if any, the plans to extend this BPA to the all of BLM? Because I imagine they're looking and saying, geez, Catherine's getting everything digitized. I want to also. (laughs) Yes, I think it's recognized at a national level, both internally and externally, that having solely paper copies of the range records has made a lot of jobs more time consumptive, more cumbersome, and less effective. And there is a desire at a national level to bring the records up to, you know, this century Um, I have been approached by several other state leads for the contract so that they can see how they could modify it to be something compatible with their state's needs. Got it. And I imagine, too, and tell me if this is accurate, that given the contiguous states that BLM has, there might be records from your office that a neighboring state might need and vice versa. So eventually it's more useful if everything is digitized. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. And I mean, that's one of the benefits just in Nevada with the six districts. There's, you know, allotments that might be housed in one district, but be managed by another district or, you know, all of those intricacies. And so even within the state, there's the benefit of that ability to share. But certainly across any jurisdictional boundary, there's that benefit. And when you get rid of all of the file cabinets, will you put in a foosball table, say? (laughs) 
a pool table. Oh, that's but... good. That's yeah, out west. Yeah, we should have a pool table for sure. <laughs> well, and we will still be housing. This will not 100% replace the requirement to house paper records. For range policy, the paper records are still our policy required record format. But this will allow for all of those records to be backed up if, you know, God forbid, an office burns down or something, as well as providing all of the useful components we've already talked about. But it won't 100% replace the paper records in the foreseeable future. And how long will the whole project take? Do you have an estimate there? Well, um, I saw that question, and the best answer that I can come up with is that this particular BPA expires in August of 2026. And so we'll reassess at that time whether we're done or not. (laughs) Well, let's hope the scanners don't jam in the meantime. Exactly. Catherine Dyer is Nevada Range Program Lead at the Bureau of Land Management. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me and being interested in this worthwhile effort. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was a leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and 
obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. 
um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffles Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on. And you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at GrifflesPlasma.com. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. <laughs> 